from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Janice, Pixie, Rachel, Whitney, Maya, Alethea, Elena, Katoras, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Katarina, Teresa, Sophie, Nanette, my dear two Emmas, Emily, Galen, Bree, David, John, and Judy. Thank you so much. You guys are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that I can bring you more of what you crave. Also, like, share, and subscribe. It might just help our little community grow. In this week's podcast, I thought we might expand a bit from one of my last podcasts, which was titled, If I Can't Have You, and delve into the minds of obsessed fans who go on to murder the very people they claim to love or respect. And if you hear thunder outside, it's because it's storming. So we will start with one that some of my younger listeners might not have heard of, the tragic story of Rebecca Schaefer. She was born on November 6, 1967, in Eugene, Oregon, into a Jewish-American family. Her parents were Dr. Benson and Dana Schaefer. Benson was a child psychologist, and Dana was a writer and professor at Portland Community College. She was their only child and appeared to have been absolutely adored by her parents, who raised her in the Jewish faith. A website dedicated to her, RebeccaSchaefer.net, states that she was a bit of a free-spirited child, curious by nature, and loved animals, and especially going horseback riding. She was energetic and preferred to spend her time outdoors as a child. It was said that she did very well in school, was an honor roll student in high school, and was even on the student council. Sources all said that she was devoted to her Jewish faith and, like her mother, also enjoyed writing. So at 15 years old, she decided she wanted to become a model, and in 1982, she signed with a local talent agent named Nanette Troutman, who was locally known and represented about 700 people at that time, actors, models, and yes, children. But Nanette saw that spark in Rebecca, and before long... She was appearing in department store catalogs and then went on to star in some TV commercials. So she was becoming quite locally popular, and two years later, her parents gave their blessing for her to move to New York City by herself to continue her career in modeling. It wasn't long before she signed with Elite Model Management, which has signed some of the biggest names in modeling. But while there, 
she attended professional children's school, which was a school for kids who basically needed to finish their regular academic studies while pursuing careers in acting, modeling, and so on. Rebecca landed a small, short-term role on a soap opera. I'm afraid you'll have to, simply. I'm Mandy Sue Lewiston, and I'm about to wed Lord Ellington. It's not like we know each other real well or anything. That lasted six months. During this, she was still modeling, but she was five foot seven or 170 centimeters tall, which is above average in the United States, but that's not tall enough to become popular as a model. And even though she had a thin and beautiful figure, she was considered too heavy. So in 1985, she packed up and moved to Japan, hoping her height wouldn't be an issue in the modeling world. But again, she wasn't quite as tall as they wanted and thought she was too heavy. So she eventually moved back to New York City and started going to acting auditions. In 1986, the now 19-year-old budding actress began landing very small roles one was in, quote, Radio Days, directed by Woody Allen, as well as the series, quote, Amazing Stories by Steven Spielberg. Her role in Radio Days was reportedly nearly completely edited out of the movie, so she continued to model where she could, and she also waitressed to earn a living. One of her modeling gigs got her on the cover of Seventeen magazine, and this is what got her noticed by TV producers, and she eventually landed the role of Patty Russell in the show My Sister Sam. Oh, I couldn't. Come on, JD. I don't want to see you go to some hotel. You're much too big for those little soaps. <laughs> Which she is best known for. Unfortunately, the show was canceled halfway through the second season. It was around this time that she moved into a very nice apartment in the Fairfax district of West Hollywood. People loved her and recognized her natural talent and beauty, including a young man named Robert John Bardo. He was born on January 2nd, 1970, on Edwards Air Force Base in Southern California. His father, Philip, was an officer in the United States Air Force. The only information I could find out about his mother, June, was that she was Japanese. Due to Robert's father's military career, the family moved around quite a bit, as they often do. When he was 13 years old, they eventually settled in Tucson, Arizona. It was reported that Robert was the youngest of seven children, and he allegedly had a rough childhood. His siblings terrorized him, and one of them was regularly abusing him to the point that he threatened to unalive himself. From this, he was temporarily placed in a foster home. It was established that his family had a history of mental illness, and he had not escaped it either. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and at 15 years old was institutionalized for a month in an attempt to treat his emotional problems. 
As we've discussed in the past, bipolar disorder is part of the cluster B personality disorders that display as feeling abnormally upbeat, jumpy, or wired. The person may have increased activity, energy, and agitation. They often have an exaggerated sense of well-being and self-confidence that they experience as euphoria. They often have a decreased need for sleep, are usually talkative, have racing thoughts, reduced inhibitions, and so on. Then, it will shift into a much darker mood through the depressive stage, where they feel an overwhelming sense of hopelessness and withdraw from family, friends, and lose interest in their normally loved activities. Once Robert was released and sent back to school for his freshman year, he dropped out and started working as a janitor at the fast food restaurant Jack in the Box. Still only 15 years old, he developed an obsession and began stalking a 13-year-old peace activist, Samantha Reed Smith. She had become famous for her anti-war outreaches during the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. She was America's youngest goodwill ambassador and also participated in peacemaking activities in Japan. She had also begun some small acting roles. Robert decided he wanted to meet young Samantha. So he traveled up to Maine where she lived, but was stopped by the police and ultimately sent home. Not too long after this, unfortunately, Samantha and her father both died in a plane crash. It was then that Robert focused his obsession with Rebecca Schaefer, who was now starring in My Sister Sam at this time. Over the next year or more, Robert had begun displaying rather disturbing behaviors and threatening his neighbors. He went on to be arrested on three separate occasions, being charged with domestic violence and disorderly conduct. Robert began writing Rebecca letters, many letters. He explained how he thought they were kindred spirits. Along with the letters, he also sent gifts to the young actress, and she received them. She stated that she thought it was sweet that a fan was sending her stuffed animals and other little gifts to the studio where she was filming the show. Eventually, Rebecca responded to one of Robert's letters, and he took this as a divine sign that they were in an actual relationship. So he traveled to Los Angeles to the filming studio to meet her, flowers and a teddy bear in hand, but security would not let him in. A month later, he attempted to meet Rebecca again, this time armed with a knife, but was still not allowed into the studio lot. Robert, who kept a diary, wrote about this incident, saying, quote, I don't lose, period, end quote. And then when Rebecca had a love scene in a film she was starring in, Robert was immediately enraged at the thought that she had done a sex scene with another actor. It was at this point that his rage turned into murder. He later said, quote, She came into my life in the right moment. She was brilliant, pretty, outrageous. Her innocence impressed me. She turned into a goddess for me, an idol. I only adored her, end quote. He then later went on to say, quote, 
If she was a whore, God was going to appoint me to punish her. End quote. Robert wrote a letter to one of his sisters stating that he was obsessed with the unattainable and he felt compelled to eliminate what he could not attain. He then, for $300, hired a private detective to track down and get Rebecca's physical home address, which was found through DMV records. After on July 18, 1989, he visited her apartment. A copy of J.D. Salinger's book, quote, The Catcher in the Rye, in his pocket. She answered. He introduced himself and said he was a big fan. Now, this is where sources differ. Some say she thanked him for being a fan, but that she was busy and told him goodbye. Other sources state that he kind of went off on her, explaining he was disappointed in her for doing the love scene. Either way, she politely dismissed him, and that was that. You see, Rebecca was preparing to audition for a role in The Godfather 3, and the only reason she had answered the door so quickly and without pause was because she had been expecting the script to be delivered. After Robert had been turned away, he went to a nearby diner and had breakfast. One hour later, he went back to her apartment and knocked on the door. This time, when she answered, he later said she, quote, answered the door with a cold look on her face, end quote. He produced a pistol that one of his brothers had helped him obtain, pointed it at her, and shot her in the chest. She fell to the floor and said, quote, why? Robert fled the scene, but there were witnesses to his presence in the neighborhood that morning. One of Rebecca's neighbors heard the shot and screams and called the police. She was rushed to the hospital, but was sadly pronounced dead 30 minutes after she arrived there. The next day, a man matching the description of the man that allegedly shot Rebecca was found walking in between cars on a highway, shouting, quote, I killed Rebecca Schaefer, end quote. This was an attempt, he later said, to end his own life. Once arrested, he immediately confessed. Rebecca's murder led to the first anti-stalking laws. Robert was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. A lot of people have stated that when someone works to become famous, that they know the risks involved, but I think this is victim shaming. While some people try to be famous simply for the fame, others truly love acting. Their job is their passion and we as consumers enjoy their work. So I feel that they are still entitled to their private lives. They are humans with feelings and emotions, but there will always be overzealous fans and there have been for a long time. Let's go back just a few years. John Winston Lennon was born October 9th, 1940 in Liverpool, England. Now, I'm sure most everyone listening knows who John Lennon was, but perhaps not everyone. So I'll make his biographical part more to the point. His parents, Alfred and Julia, named him John after his paternal grandfather and Winston after the Prime Minister of England, Winston Churchill. 
His father worked away from home most of the time, but still provided for his wife and son. And then, when John was four years old, his father sort of disappeared out of their lives for around six months. When he returned to resume his role as husband and father, Julia was already carrying another man's child, and she wanted no part of him coming back. There were some custody issues until 1946, when Alfred took John with him to Blackpool with the intention of relocating to New Zealand. But Julia somehow found out about the plan and confronted Alfred, who went on to force six-year-old John to choose between his parents. John originally chose his father, but as he watched his mother walk away, he changed his mind and followed her. Some sources state this was not how the situation went down, but regardless, after that day, John didn't see or speak to his father for another 20 years. Interestingly, John actually spent the rest of his childhood being raised by his mother's sister and her husband. The couple never had any children of their own, and they adored John. They bought him countless books, encouraging him to read constantly, as well as working crossword puzzles. Now, he and his mother remained friendly, and he would often visit her where they would listen to Elvis Presley records together. He learned to play the banjo as well as the harmonica. As he came into his teens, he and a couple of his cousins would go watch movies in the local cinema. His high school acquaintances described him as, quote, happy-go-lucky, good-humored, easygoing, lively lad, end quote. But he had a rebellious side to him, and he described himself as a bit of a troublemaker and nonconformist. He was jealous that his peers had a normal, generic home with the predictable nuclear family, and he did not. In 1956, 16-year-old John was given his first guitar by his mother. John had told his aunt that he was going to be a famous musician, and she wasn't super supportive, but his mother was. His aunt was concerned that he wouldn't be able to carve out a comfortable life as a musician. Oh, how very wrong she was. Two years later, John's mother was walking home one day and was hit by a car, ultimately ending her life. John went into a deep depression and self-medicated with alcohol and getting into physical fights, later stating it threw him into a blind rage. He was failing high school, so his aunt coordinated him attending the Liverpool College of Art, but he dressed and conducted himself quite rebelliously and was nearly kicked out. He was eventually expelled before his final year, but by this point, John was already friends with Paul McCartney and they had begun playing music together. Soon George Harrison joined and with some other bandmates coming in and going out, the infamous band The Beatles was formed in 1960. This is, of course, an absolute gross oversimplification of John's early life, but it gives you an idea. Now, the Beatles presented themselves as pretty squeaky clean, although on a personal note, my grandfather called them long-haired hippies, but they were four young, handsome men playing rock and roll, and the girls went wild. Often, you couldn't hear them playing over the girls screaming for them. 
This phenomenon was referred to as Beatlemania. In 1964, the group appeared on the American TV show, The Ed Sullivan Show, and it catapulted them into international stars. But John wasn't super thrilled with the cookie-cutter pop culture icons they were portraying. He said, quote, We were just writing songs, pop songs, with no more thought of them than that to create a sound, and words were almost irrelevant, end quote. John's first son, with his then-wife Cynthia, Julian, was born in 1963 and was named after John's mother. In summation, John was not the father that one would think he would have been, considering his own pain during childhood. In fact, Julian was actually quite close with Paul, who wrote the song, quote, Hey Jude, to show his love for the boy while John and Cynthia divorced due to John having a love affair with Yoko Ono, a Japanese multimedia artist, if you will. John went on to have a son with Yoko that they named Sean in 1975. But in 1966, John said in an interview, quote, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity, end quote. This prompted Christians to burn Beatles albums and make threats towards John. He was dabbling in drugs, including LSD, stating he was close to erasing his identity. The Beatles performed All You Need Is Love during a satellite broadcast for a global audience, and the song represented John's growing pacifist stance as the hippie movement was in full swing. He was further moved after a trip to India in 1968. John and the band released a song titled Revolution, where he was calling for a plan to commit a Maoist revolution. He began immersing himself further and further into he and Yoko's relationship, driving a wedge between himself and the band. After their marriage, they released images from their honeymoon, which were then considered indecent and were banned from publication. They published music together. John began and then kicked a serious heroin addiction. The Beatles were no more in 1969. He released his very famous song, Imagine, in 1971, while also becoming a bit of a political activist for the anti-war movement. In 1974, John was back to drinking heavily and acting out, such as attaching an unused feminine hygiene pad on his forehead and fighting with a waitress. Finally, he and Yoko got back together and he began making music again. And remember, this is an incredibly condensed version of his life. On December 8th, 1980, John would meet the man that would end his life, Mark David Chapman. Mark was born on May 10th, 1955 in Fort Worth, Texas, though he would be raised near Atlanta, Georgia. His father had been a staff sergeant in the Air Force and his mother had been a nurse. He had one sister who was seven years younger than him. Mark later stated that his father had been horribly abusive to his mother, both 
physically and mentally, as well as mean to him, and he lived in constant fear of his father. Mark later stated, quote, I'd wake up hearing my mother screaming my name, and it just scarred the fire out of me, and I'd run in there and make him go away. Sometimes I think I actually pushed him away, end quote. In his later childhood and early adolescence, he began to fantasize about being a sort of god to a group of imaginary tiny people that lived within the walls of his bedroom. He stated, quote, I used to fantasize that I was a king and I had all these little people around me and that they lived in the walls and that I was their hero and was in the paper every day and I was on TV every day, their TV, and that I was important. They all kind of worshipped me, you know. It was like I could do no wrong. And sometimes when I'd get mad, I'd blow some of them up. I'd have this push-button thing, part of the sofa, and I'd like get mad and blow out part of the wall and a lot of them would die, but the people would still forgive me for that and, you know, everything got back to normal. That's a fantasy I had for many years." End quote. He also had thoughts of murdering his father, but outwardly he was described as a typical, normal boy with an above-average IQ. Later in his life, he described his childhood as unhappy and that he was bullied by his male peers so he retreated within himself and his imaginary friends. In his mid-teens, Mark was skipping school and using drugs. He even ran away for a couple of weeks and lived on the streets of Atlanta. But then in 1971, at the age of 16, he found God, quote, end quote. He followed the Presbyterian Christian denomination and handed out biblical pamphlets. He even became a summer camp counselor and was said to be quite popular with the children who called him Nemo. His boss at the camp said, quote, if there ever was a person who had the potential for doing good, it was Mark, end quote. His favorite band was the Beatles and he picked up playing the guitar. So while in high school, a friend recommended he read J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye, and he did. He also sort of idolized the book's main character, Holden Caulfield, who for many people became an icon for teenage rebellion and angst. In summation, the character Holden is telling his story about a week he stayed in New York City during Christmas break in the late 40s after being kicked out of school. This is important. So after high school, Mark did begin college but dropped out. He held several jobs, but was fired from many of them. He moved up to Chicago and played guitar in churches, as well as Christian nightclubs, for a time. He also had a moderately successful job working with Vietnamese refugees at a resettlement camp in Arkansas. His boss there commented how Mark, quote, was really caring with the refugees, and he worked his tail off to do everything exactly right. He was a super kid, end quote. He was even able to shake hands with the then president of the United States, Gerald Ford. He had a girlfriend for a time and became depressed and felt guilty about the sexual relationship they had. 
He later said he began having suicidal thoughts and felt that he was a failure. He attempted to end his life using the exhaust from his car, but was unsuccessful. Due to this, he was hospitalized for his mental health, but once he was released, the hospital hired him to work there. His boss stated, quote, all the patients, especially the older ones that nobody else would talk to, just loved that boy, and I can't say enough good about him, end quote. Mark went on a trip around far eastern countries and courted a Japanese-American travel agent. After two years together, they married in 1979. Again, he worked but had a hard time maintaining stable employment. He borrowed money he could not pay back and was in debt. The amount of stress he felt caused him to become obsessive about things such as artwork that centered around the catcher in the rye as well as John Lennon. And he later said he began hearing the voices of the quote, little people again. He began drinking heavily and in September 1980, Mark wrote a letter to a friend stating he felt he was losing his mind and signed the letter, quote, the catcher in the rye, end quote. But his obsession with Lennon was growing. He resented the fact that John said the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. Some of his prayer group had jokingly changed a line in Lennon's song, Imagine, to say, imagine if John Lennon was dead. Mark felt the song was promoting communism. His wife later said Mark, quote, was angry that Lennon would preach love and peace, but yet have millions, end quote. He was angered at the fact that John was preaching about zero possessions, and yet John had millions of dollars, yachts, farms, and country estates, and felt John was laughing at people like him. Mark himself said, quote, I would listen to this music and I would get angry at him for saying that he didn't believe in God, that he just believed in him and Yoko, and that he didn't believe in the Beatles. This was another thing that angered me, even though this record had been done at least 10 years previously. I just wanted to scream out loud, who does he think he is saying these things about God and heaven and the Beatles? saying he doesn't believe in Jesus and things like that. At that point, my mind was going through a total blackness of anger and rage. So I brought the Lennon book home into this catcher in the rye milieu where my mindset is Holden Caulfield and anti-phoniness, end quote. He went to New York in October, intending on murdering John Lennon, but went back to Atlanta to get ammunition, which sources all agreed on, but doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I digress. He again went to New York with his murderous intent, but sidetracked himself by going to a movie and talked himself out of it. He flew to Hawaii and spoke to his wife about how he couldn't stop thinking about killing John Lennon, but he felt he had snapped out of it. On December 6th, he flew back to New York and reportedly reenacted some scenes from the Catcher in the Rye book. He then went to a bookstore, purchased a copy of the book, wrote in it, quote, this is my statement, end quote, and signed it, The Catcher in the Rye. He spent the rest of the day loitering around the Dakota building where John lived, chatting with the doorman as well as other fans who were also waiting outside. 
Two days later, Mark met John and Yoko's housekeeper, who was taking Sean out for a morning walk and patted young Sean on the head as they left. That evening, John and Yoko left the apartment building to go to a recording session, and Mark was able to shake hands with John. John also signed an album that Mark produced for his autograph. Mark said that he felt a bit better and wanted to go back to his hotel, but he just couldn't make himself. Instead, he waited. At just before 11 p.m. that night, John and Yoko returned to the Dakota and walked past Mark. Mark turned, raised the gun he was carrying, and shot five rounds at John, four of them hitting their mark in John's back and shoulder. One of the bullets hit John's aorta, causing severe bleeding. He was rushed into a police car and to the hospital, but was pronounced dead when he arrived from blood loss. Mark never left the scene. He pulled out the book he had purchased just days before and began reading. He was arrested right then and there with no resistance. He told the police, quote, I'm sure the big part of me is Holden Caulfield, who is the main person in the book. The small part of me must be the devil, end quote. After around 200 hours of interviews and assessments, Five separate psychiatrists diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia. A sixth described his symptoms more in line with manic depression, which we now call bipolar disorder. He was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison, where he remains today. On a personal note, it is a bit eerie that both of these men were carrying copies of The Catcher of the Rye on them when they murdered their victims. Another story of an obsession gone too far is the story of singer Selena. After a lot of hard work and years put in, she achieved fame as a Latin singer who had just begun to hit the mainstream pop charts with her English music. A woman named Yolanda would come into Selena's life after seeing Selena in concert in Texas. She immediately began sort of spamming Selena's father, begging him to allow her to start a Selena fan club, to which he eventually relented. But Selena and Yolanda became fairly close after a while, and Yolanda even began running a clothing boutique that Selena had opened. As time passed, it became very apparent that Yolanda was stealing quite a lot of money from the singer and... When Selena asked that she produce financial documents, Yolanda shot and killed her as Selena tried desperately to escape the hotel room they had met in for the document exchange. She had been hit just once in her right lower shoulder, severing a major artery and died from blood loss. She was just 24 years old. She was buried in April of 1995. I was curious what might have been going on with Yolanda, and I did dig around to see if I could find any possible psychological profiles, but didn't find any. 
What I did find was a video on YouTube by Dr. Grande, who of course is always careful to say he's not officially diagnosing anyone. And he thought pretty strongly that she might have had narcissistic personality disorder, that Yolanda had always thought she deserved more than she ever had, and that she had been living vicariously through the young and beautiful singer. When it was discovered, she had been running the fan club and the clothing business horribly, as well as stealing tens of thousands of dollars. She could in no way take responsibility. Yolanda has, on several occasions, alluded to the fact that she was saving Selena from some personal information leaking to the public and thus ruining her good name. She has led people on wild goose chases, stating she has some secret information in some lockbox or whatever, but, but never has anything ever come of it. She is still in prison and will be eligible for parole in 2025. There have been others as well, such as Gianni Versace, who in 97 was shot and killed by spree killer Andrew Cunanan as he walked out of his house to retrieve his morning magazines. Andrew walked up to him and shot him at point-blank range in the head. He had been obsessed with the fashion designer for some time and used to brag that he was close friends with Gianni, which, of course, was not even close to true. Andrew went on to take his own life eight days later while on a houseboat. Now, there is an actual name for this very intense phenomenon, if you will. Dr. Mark Griffiths wrote an article for Psychology Today about what they have named this. Celebrity Worship Syndrome. He wrote, quote, Celebrity Worship Syndrome has been described as an obsessive addictive disorder where an individual becomes overly involved and interested, i.e. completely obsessed, with the details of the personal life of a celebrity. Any person who is, quote, in the public eye can be the object of a person's obsession, like authors, politicians, journalists, but research and criminal prosecutions suggest they are more likely to be someone from the world of television, film, and or pop music, end quote. The term was first coined by Lynn McCutcheon and her team in the early 2000s, but was also discussed in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease, entitled, quote, A Clinical Interpretation of Attitudes and Behaviors Associated with Celebrity Worship, end quote. This syndrome has been identified as having three categories or dimensions, entertainment social, intense personal, and borderline pathological. The first, entertainment social, aligns with a person who is pulled toward a particular celebrity based on how that celebrity entertains the person and thus the person enjoys talking about them socially with their peers. The second, intense personal, we begin to see that the individual begins to have intense and compulsive feelings about their favorite celebrity. And finally, with borderline pathological, we see what appears to be uncontrollable and compulsive behaviors and fantasies regarding the celebrity. 
And it should come as no surprise. After numerous studies, behavioral scientists have found a correlation between the pathological aspects of celebrity worship syndrome and poor mental health, such as anxiety, depression, higher than normal stress levels, increased illness, and a poorer body image. Studies have also shown that girls between the ages of 14 to 16 show a relationship between intense personal celebrity worship and body image. And really, anyone with a teenager, especially girls, can tell you how devastating it is to watch them become fixated on a celebrity who happens to have what society deems a perfect body and then compare that to their own build. But as a whole, Research has shown a strong correlation between most celebrity-obsessed individuals and them suffering with high levels of dissociation and are prone to fantasy. And yet there is a biological factor to this. It was, of course, a positive thing for primitive humans to look up to successful hunters and respected elders. The problem is that looking up to a successful hunter and learning techniques and practicing new skills learned from them benefited the individual. These days, the idols humans worship no longer serve that kind of purpose. And because their level of fame and fortune is basically unattainable, it creates negative feelings and possibly pathology. Nearly all of us will never have that perfect body we picture in our minds. We won't ever have the millions of dollars that celebrities have to get the surgeries necessary to have those bodies, or the cars, or the mansions, or the vacations to Bora Bora. And it's normal to see those things and covet them. But a handful take it too far, and the result can be deadly. Thanks for listening.